Hey, I'm Daniel, and welcome to the Milwaukee Chi Alpha Podcast. What you're going to get from this podcast is biblical encouragement for college students in Milwaukee. And if you don't fit that description, this can still be a good listen for you. What you're about to listen to is our sermon series called Sent. We're studying the book of Acts, the ordinary people who had an extraordinary story. Jesus, thank you so much that we get to be family in this room, that we get to draw closer to each other as we look up at you. You help us love each other well, and you help us love you really well. And Lord, help us to carry your heart tonight, to get a little bit uh, clearer picture of your heart and your desire for your world tonight as we look at your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. How many of you feel irked? When someone wants you to change, change the way you think, change the way you act, change the way you react, change the way uh, you talk. Yeah, two hands up, like, I don't change me, right? We don't really like this, do we? Uh, We don't want people to change us, and we don't want people to ask us to change something about us, or that we do. And on top of that, our culture really cares about that too, doesn't it? Our culture has become all the more opposed about anyone who ever says anything about changing someone else. And this is not surprising because the reality is we don't like anyone wanting to change us. You feel that? Like we all feel that reality of I don't want you to want to change me. There's something there about us that is uncomfortable. We don't like it. And yet, there's something critical to being a Christian, a follower of Jesus, that is about him changing us. And in light of all of this tension about being asking someone else to change, we come to Acts chapter 26. And I think this scripture is going to expose an uncomfortable question. I think this is actually one of the most beautiful passages in Scripture, and I hope you really enjoy it tonight as we read it. But where where I think this passage is taking us is asking an uncomfortable and uncomfortable question. Do we want people around us to become followers of Jesus? And maybe on the outside that feels like, oh, of course, we're we're Christians. We we want other people to know Jesus. But at the same time, maybe you also had a little bit of like, I don't really like saying that. And I don't know if you've noticed that as we have, you've been a part of Chi Alpha, some of you have been around a little longer than others. Maybe you've noticed the way we talk about this kind of stuff. We don't say, we want you to become a Christian. We say things like, we just want you to know Jesus. We want you to, to fall in love with him because he's really lovely. We want you to ex- just experience his love for you. We're going to see how trustworthy he is. And in a way, we're trying to describe that same reality of what it means to become a Christian, but in maybe a more palatable way. And yet, this passage that we're going to read tonight poses this, this phrase in, in such a way as becoming what Paul says he is, becoming something different, becoming something new, becoming a Christian. And tonight, what I hope 
happens is we kind of wrestle with maybe some hesitations in our heart about how we want to live out our faith and how we bring that into the world and those around us and wrestle with some of the hesitations, maybe some of the baggage that maybe we carry or we know others carry about the term Christian or this idea of becoming a Christian. There's something there that kind of gets us uncomfortable. And I think it's tied to this idea of we don't want to change anyone else. We don't want to change anything fundamental about them. And so for us to say we want you to be a Christian just feels uncomfortable. And I want, what I want to do tonight, and I want you to have, have some patience here as we go through this passage, is would you like take note of your hesitations? Because your hesitations probably have something very good at the core of them. There's something really good that's probably at the base of that that has a, a love and an honor for those around you. But on the other side, there's something really good about what Jesus desires for his creation. And somewhere in the middle, we have to fit these pieces together. And maybe it means using different language like we have done in Chi Alpha about saying we love Jesus and we just want you to know him and love him too and trust him and choose him. But I, as we go through our Bible, and I hope you've noticed this this year, we want Scripture to inform how we think and act and live and not view our, let our cultural understanding impose that view on Scripture. Right? That's a really important distinction. There's nuances here. We're trying to understand. There's culture, lots of, th- lots of things. But we must let our Bible inform us on how to think rather than our culture informing how we read our Bible. Right? Okay, with all of that preamble said, let's go to Acts chapter 26. And like I said, this is one of my favorite stories. And so just to catch us up on the scene, right, where we're at in the story, Catherine kind of brought us through the, little, the, her- the, the history like of Paul's story from when he goes to Jerusalem and then he gets arrested because he riles up the Jews and they like, want to beat him to death. And so the Romans arrest him and then they realize he's a Roman citizen. And so he's like, you got to try, you got to put, give me a trial if you're going to arrest me. And so that's what kind of happens. He's like two years in a prison waiting for them to have a trial. And essentially that's where we're at. Okay, so Paul has been in prison <laughs> waiting essentially to have a trial with the Roman leaders of the area, and we're going we're gonna to meet some characters, one of them being King Agrippa. He is the king of the region, and the governor, Festus, is kind of the second guy in command, I, I understand. Um, and the reason this scene matters is because Paul has appealed to Caesar, meaning he wants to ha- bring his case and his argument to the highest seat in the land in Rome, to Caesar. And so, as a Roman citizen, he's going to be given that right. However, the local authorities are the ones who must understand the case and then have an opinion about the case. So, as the King Agrippa, he's got to know this. If he's going to send someone to Caesar, he not only needs to know what Paul's case, this whole trial, is about, he also is going to have an opinion, and he's going to put that as a cover letter that he's going to send with Paul to Caesar. Okay, so here we're going to have King Agrippa is going to listen to Paul's case and what Paul is being arrested for and why he stands on trial. Okay, that was preamble number two. Now we're going to actually read Acts 26. Starting in verse 1, it says, Then Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. 
So Paul motioned with his hand and began his defense. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews, and especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. You notice, like, Paul's demeanor, his language is full of respect and honor and acknowledging where King Agrippa, like, he understands a lot, and he gives weight to what King Agrippa how he sees and understands, right? This is a whole lot of honor being displayed from Paul to the people who are trying him, right? Okay, I think that's really noteworthy. It shows us how Paul is carrying himself here and the heart he has for those he's, he's talking to. But let's continue on. Verse 4. The Jewish people all know the way I've lived ever since I was a child. From the beginning of, from the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem, they have known me for a long time and can testify, if they're willing, that I conform to the strictest sect of our religion, living as a Pharisee. And now it is because of my hope in what God has promised our ancestors that I am on trial today. This is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they eagerly serve God day and night. King Agrippa, it is because of this hope that these Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider incredible that God raises the dead? Now, we get a bit of history here of kind of where Paul is, like, his background. He's, he's a Pharisee. You at, go, he's like, go ask other Pharisees. They, if they're willing, they'll tell you that I'm, I'm, I'm one of them. I've been um, uh, of the strictest sect. He knows it through and through. And yet we also get a very important perspective of how Paul is viewing all of the Old Testament. Another plug for Qtot. Okay, go to Qtot. Listen to Qtot. It's great. But Paul sees the entire Old Testament summed up as this longing, this people longing for the hope of the Messiah, this one who's going to come and restore, right? This promise our 12 tribes earnestly serve God day and night. This is what they're longing for, this one who will come and restore and bring life, make dead things alive. And so when Paul says in verse 8, like, why is it a surprise that God raises the dead? He's God, you know? And this is really the crux of Paul's whole argument about his faith, about Christianity, that there's something about the resurrection that cannot be shaken. And, and go listen to Caitlin's sermon a couple weeks ago, um, which was really important for us to understand the resurrection. This is critical for us as Christians. But let's keep reading. Verse 9. I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. I I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, King Agrippa, I was on the road. And I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Let's take a moment here and stop. Okay, so again, we're getting more backstory of how Paul treated this movement at first. He opposed them just like everyone else. He wanted them dead. We see him working against and even putting people in prison and voting against them so that they would be killed. Okay, so Paul has been fighting against his movement up until that day. 
Jesus shows up and he changes everything. And we get this little phrase that Jesus says, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. Basically, a goad is something that prodded an animal to kind of keep it moving, right? And this phrase is an expression that was basically meant, you can't fight against God. It's useless to fight against God. It's hard to kick against the goads means don't try to fight against God. And so when Jesus is saying this to Paul, he's saying, I am God. You, you won't be able to fight against me. Go read Acts chapter 4 again. Um, Gamaliel's argument about this movement of Christianity. You can't stop it if God's behind it. Here we have another word of that. But let's keep reading. Verse 15. Then I asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. And we get some really cool pictures of what this gospel is all about, don't we? From dark to light, out of the power of Satan to power of God, which is freedom. From uh, shackled in bitterness to forgiveness. Forgiveness in Christ and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in him, a home. This is what this gospel is all about. This is how Paul viewed it. This is what Jesus commanded Paul to go and preach. And I don't know if you noticed this, but in this passage, these are not things about like, Paul, in your own heart, I'm going to make, you know, bring from darkness to light. No, that's true, but that's not the language he uses. This is clearly an internal gospel. And you go read all of Paul's letters and you'll see this is a work that goes, that God wants to do in us. But there's also something very clear that God, Jesus called Paul to go and preach a message to people, right? That all people would hear this reality, this statement of reality, that this world is in darkness and Jesus wants to bring it out into his marvelous light of his salvation and his grace. This is a worldview. This is the claim about reality. This is not just personal convictions of something on the inside of me. And we've got to wrestle with this sometimes as Christians, as followers of Jesus, as those who love Jesus and have chosen Jesus. He wants not just our own heart transformed, but he wants the world, all people. He wants to draw all people to himself, to open the eyes of not only the Jews, but the Gentiles, and to make a place for them in his family. I love that line. And, and, and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. A home. But let's keep going, because there's more. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven. Okay, this little line I think is interesting. Because if you didn't notice before, Paul has already mentioned authority a few different times. That he was operating under the authority and the commission of the chief priests. Which this is a really important fact, because he's talking to the Roman authorities. And in Roman culture, Roman military, Roman government... Authority really mattered. You submitted to authority. You followed authority. This is how they run it. It was by the book. You just did it. This is how we do it, right? So Paul, in his trying to be relatable with these people, he's speaking in terms that, they, that make sense to them. He is 
following what the authorities over him commissioned him to do. And then we see in verse 19, he's still doing the same thing, only the authority has changed. It's no longer just his religion. Now it's God himself. God has commissioned him to send him, and he will not be disobedient to what Jesus has commanded. But let's continue on. Verse 20, first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, then to the Gentiles, I preach that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. That is why some Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But God has helped me to this very day, so I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Messiah would suffer, and as the first to rise from the dead, would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You are out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. Isn't that great? That Yeah, that's in the Bible. You're out of your mind, Paul. You can quote that. Acts 26, verse 24. There it is. You're out of your mind. Oh, this is so interesting, right? We get this really interesting story. These interactions with real people. It's very relatable and down to earth. But like I was just talking about authority, right after that, verse 20 to 24, he brings up that this is what all of the prophets and Moses said would happen. So not only is he saying, I'm, I'm operating in the authority of God, I'm also not making something new. I've been a part of this religion, right? That is, this is the culmination of this religion that as the Romans are looking at him, this, they already understand Judaism. They're okay with the Jews and their, their religion. And so they're like, he's saying, I'm a part of this thing that's already been, and this is the culmination of it. Jesus is the very fulfillment of everything that the prophets and Moses have said. And Festus thinks he's just absolutely ridiculous. But let's keep reading. Verse 25. I am not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I am saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Let's pause there. I love how Paul turns his attention to King Agrippa. And he's so like, I just get the sense of the gentleness of like an appeal to him to just help him see like, King Agrippa, I know, I know you're aware of all the stuff. I know you're aware of the stories. You've been king during this, this, this period. You know what happened in Jerusalem. You know, it was the Romans who crucified Jesus and guarded the, the, tomb, the tomb. It was the Jews who got all the, it was all, it was not done in a corner, Paul says. This was public. And so what he's, he's basically saying this resurrection idea is not just a, an idea and a philosophy. Because like the dead don't just get up from the grave. They don't. But Paul's saying, but, but one did. Jesus did. And it's, for him, it's unavoidable. He has to reconcile with the reality that this resurrection changed everything. 
And a couple things, I was doing some research just on like the reasonability, right? As Paul says, what is true and reasonable here uh, of the resurrection. And there's a couple like really uh, clear ways in which we can kind of like verify the resurrection based on the ancient accounts of um, the Bible and, and others. One is that there was no body and there was no tomb. Like there was a tomb, but it was empty. There's no body in that tomb and that tomb is forgotten. Nobody knows where that was. There's no body. Now, there was rumors that were started, and uh, I don't remember which gospel, now I'm blanking, uh, said, like, there was rumors started that the, the, the Christians, the apostles, took the body of Jesus as a way of, like, they were trying to feed this lie. There's no body, but there are eyewitness accounts. And there's many of them. And you go read 1 Corinthians chapter 15 where Paul talks about this. And Caitlin referenced it a few weeks ago. The eyewitness accounts of this thing. This was not done in a corner. Many people saw it. And as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, there, many of them were still living today when he's writing that. Not today, right? <laughs> Bummer. <laughs> but for the early church, many saw it. They saw him die and was, were buried it was sealed by the, like the Romans made a statement, like this, he is dead. They took him off the cross and they put him in the tomb. He was dead. But then, he, Jesus, after rising from the grave, he showed up to so many people, not just as a vision, but as real, right? He, we see him, he ate bread, right? People kept talking about it and King Agrippa knew the stories. He knew Something happened with the body. He knew a whole lot of people kept talking about it. And then the third one is this transformed lives of people went out and they lived differently from it. The disciples, the apostles themselves, like of the 11, you know, sans Judas, of the 11, they all died for it. John is the only one they tried to kill him in boiling oil and then they just banished him on an, on an island because he miraculously survived that. They all, none of them cracked. I would imagine if anyone, any of us in the room had made up something, contrived some story, but if then all of the authorities around you came pressing, knocking on your door, threatening to kill you, actually killing you, you'd probably crack if it was a lie. But it was true. And they would not give in. They would not abandon King Jesus. The lives and the spread of this gospel bears weight to the reality that this resurrection indeed happened. And Paul knows that King Agrippa has seen it. And he points out, I know you, I know you believe in the prophets. I know you believe in this stuff, and I know you've not seen anything. I, I know you've seen all the stuff. What he's talking about is history and events, not just theology and ideas. But let's read the response. King, this is verse 28. Then Agrippa said to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? This could have been a little bit of a defensive, like trying not to put any political pressure on him because he's trying to appease a lot of different people. Maybe this is his way out. But he says that. And then in verse 29, Paul replied, short time or long, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. 
You imagine him lifting up his arm with shackles on his arms. Verse 30, the king rose and with him, the governor and Bernice and those sitting with them. After they left the room, they began saying to one another, this man does, has, is not doing anything that deserves death or imprisonment. Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. That last line, you can, uh, it reminds me of Catherine's message last week. Go listen to that on the podcast about could have, could have gotten out of it, but he didn't. Go listen to that, that one. That was really good. But I want to I wanna zero in on this, re, this response from Paul. Short time or long, I pray that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. Paul clearly and openly displays his desire. Short or long, he desires for others to become what he is, to become a follower of Jesus, to become someone who has given his life for Jesus, the risen king, for Jesus, the son of God, for Jesus, who gave everything out of his love for Paul, who rescued Paul, who forgave Paul, who redeemed Paul. Paul saying, I, I pray that everyone will become like that, trusting and obeying and surrendering to Jesus. All people, important, unseen, men, women, children, all who hear this, this truth, this reasonable truth of Jesus, our Savior who is risen, who has conquered the grave. Now, Notice here, Paul doesn't talk about love. He doesn't talk about grace. He doesn't talk about the goodness or the trustworthiness of God. But you don't have to look far for, to hear what Paul thinks about all that. Go read his letters. It's full of it. He's, he is absolutely undone by the love of Jesus. Go read Ephesians. It's wonderful. But here in this passage, we see Paul trying very clearly to present this reasonability of this faith. And he displays his desire that not only King Agrippa, but all of Rome would become like Jesus. This leads us to this question that we started with. Do we have that same desire that Paul did, that he displayed in that moment, shackled to a table, giving his defense of his faith? Do we desire for others to be followers of Jesus? Now, some of you may be very quick to say, of course I do, yes. And while some of you may be hesitant, like, I, yes. And maybe some of you even more, like, I don't think I want that. That seems too narrow-minded. That seems too much like boxing people in. How could I impose anything on other people? And I think that's really valid. And I'm very sympathetic to that perspective because we don't, we don't want to just change people. What I think this is really important in this verse, we see Paul saying, I pray, whether short time or long, I pray to God that not only you, King Agrippa, all those who are hearing me may become. What we don't hear is Paul, Paul doesn't say, yeah, I, I hope I can convince you today. I'm going to make you a Christian. That's not what we hear Paul doing. He is not saying, I'm going to be the one to make others Christians. Instead, he says, whether it's today, whether it's years down the road, I'm just praying that Jesus, Jesus will show up 
that you'll see him. He'll, you'll see the light of his gospel. You'll see his power, his glory, his greatness, his grace. And that's the desire that we're talking about here. And for those who are like, yes, I definitely want others to know it. And now I have Acts 26, and I'm going to go use Acts 26 to convince my friends. Hold on. Because this is not our silver bullet. This is not the thing that we can just argue anyone. Nobody's going to be argued into his into a relationship with Jesus. There's a reason we talk about becoming a Christian in the terms we do because we, we, we view it as a relationship with the God of the universe. That's what we believe this Bible is telling us. It's not about just believe and you're good, but about believe in the one who loves you like crazy. Trust him. He's good. Give your life to him because he's worthy of it. He's so good and he wants restored relationship with us. This passage is not our model for engaging people who don't believe. This is a court scene. Remember, this is Roman culture. It's talking about authority. I'm just doing what the, my leaders have told me to do. Go, go on campus and tell people, yeah, I'm just, when, when I tell you about Jesus, I'm just doing what my pastor told me to do. Right? Like that method probably won't get you very far. Someone's going to come along and say, dude, just like think for yourself, man. Like, you know, like that concept just that doesn't relate. It did to them in Rome doesn't work here. But what we can learn from that is Paul knew how to speak to the culture in a way that made sense. It was relatable. And when he talks about King Agrippa, he, he talks with him as a, like, I know, I know what you think. His relationship there. If you want to help someone see Jesus through relationship, through understanding their will, it's going to take time it's going to take time for you to learn from them, to hear their arguments, to give weight to their arguments, say, oh, that makes sense. I hear what you're saying. Yeah, I can see why you'd say that. Like giving weight to what they think in their worldview, how they've come to those conclusions. It's going to take time for you to appeal to their understanding of things. Don't just assume, oh, I'm going to convince you. Let's go to Acts 26. No, don't do that. Relationship is key. But for those who are still feeling so much hesitation about how we impose, we're not imposing, how we long for others to know Jesus. What I would encourage you to do tonight is to try to take time to write out, put words to those hesitations. Why you're hesitant what you're hesitant about, what you're hesitant about the outcome of it, the beliefs behind it. And my guess is, my guess is, what you'll uncover is something along the idea of like, I don't want to do this because I value my friends. There's something about that that's going to lead you back to wanting to love and honor your friends. But on the other side, I hope, I hope what it does is it leads you to questions about the character of God. Is God, is God trustworthy? Is God really good? Is he, is he enough for everyone? Is he for everyone? Is this gospel for all people? Is, what does it say about God? I hope that as you dig at your hesitations, you'll see that we have questions about who God is. And that should lead us to pursuing more of him, to get to know him. Because he left everything to come and live among us, starting as an infant, as a baby to come, but not only just to live and to teach, but to die for us.
but then to rise again in victory over death. This was all for you, and it is all for all of humanity. His desire is for all people to see him through his life, death, and resurrection, to know him through his life, death, and resurrection, and come home to him through his life, death, and resurrection, and have a place with him. Let's join him in that desire as we wrestle through our hesitations. So what we do with that really quick is I put three things on the slide of how we can respond. One, we wrestle with our hesitations and and bring them to Jesus, what I just described. Two, what we see Paul doing. He doesn't say, I'm going to make you a Christian. He says, I pray, right? We can pray for people. In fact, if you're not already praying for those around you, this is one of the best things we can be doing is living a life of prayer for those around us, whether they're believers or not believers. Pray for people that they would know Jesus. Look at Ephesians chapter 1 and chapter 3 and look at Paul's prayers for people. They're incredible. Use them as a model and pray them over people around you. And then lastly, you can kind of see the progression. Some of you, you, be willing to be used by Jesus on our campus right here, right now, this week, even though we're nearing the end of our semester. This is how we can respond to this desire that Paul displays and this question that prompts us Do we desire to, for others, to become followers of Jesus, the Son of God? So lastly, I actually want us to go to some discussion and take a few minutes and wrestle together on these questions. Because I hope that I stirred something, something irked you, something made you uncomfortable, hopefully not as a distrust, but like, ah, I don't know how to deal with that. And so... Uh, well, there's three questions that I want us to kind of pose, and if you get through all of them, great. If you're not, that's okay too. But with the people around you in groups of maybe three or four, don't go too big so you have time to actually process. Talk about these. Talk about this question we've been wrestling with tonight. Do you desire for others to become followers of Jesus? Maybe you have a clear answer to that, but you want to wrestle with n- number two. What are, you, what are your hesitations about desiring others to become followers of Jesus? And then thirdly, what do you think Jesus wants to say to your desires and your hesitations? So before we jump into groups, let me pray and as a way of closing this time. Jesus, thank you for your word and this wonderful story of your servant Paul who did exactly what you called him to do. He testified to all that he could of you. Not only of your heart and your character, as we can read in other, other letters that he wrote, but of your resurrection. And your calling and your command, this life, this hope we have in you, that's been the hope from the very beginning of you being our Savior. You being the one who brought us out of darkness into light. Jesus, thank you that that is accomplished in your life, death, and resurrection that now it is freely given to us by your grace. Lord, help us now to wrestle with what it means to join you in your mission for others and the whole world to know it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. 
Follow us on Instagram at MilwaukeeXA to keep up to date on our events and services. Or stop by Bolton Hall Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. in room B40.